Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing author and storyteller Antonio Sacre. Uh, We're going to be talking about his latest storytelling album, uh, which is titled World's Second Best Dad. And he's going to share a few stories with us uh, as well. Uh, But we'll also be talking about his favorite kids book, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Uh, But first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. And today's poem is called The Floral Apron. And it was written by Marilyn Chin. The Floral Apron. The woman wore a floral apron around her neck, that woman from my mother's village, with a sharp cleaver in her hand. She said, What shall we cook tonight? Perhaps these six tiny squid lined up so perfectly on the block. She wiped her hand on the apron, pierced the blade into the first. There was no resistance, no blood, only cartilage soft as a child's nose. A last iota of ink made us wince. Suddenly, the aroma of ginger and scallion fogged our senses, and we absolved her for that moment's barbarism. Then she, an elder of the tribe, without formal headdress, without elegance, deigned to teach the younger about the Asian plight. And although we have traveled far, we would never forget that primal lesson on patience, courage, forbearance, on how to love squid despite squid, how to honor the village, the tribe, that floral apron. My guest today is Antonia Sacre, author of such books as A Mango in the Hand and My Name is Cool. He's also a storyteller whose storyteller recordings include Looking for Pepito and High Five Dad. His latest story album is World's Second Best Dad, which just won a 2020 Family Choice Award and a 2020 National Parenting Product Award. You can find his website at antoniosacre.com. Thank you for joining me today, Antonio. It's my pleasure to be here, Jody. Thank you for having me. I mentioned that your latest album, you've done a, a few of these storytelling albums, but your latest one is World's Second Best Dad. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what uh, someone might uh, find or hear in that album? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. So uh, I have two children. Now my son is 10 years old. My daughter is seven years old. My wife and I live in Los Angeles. And um, about three or four Father's Days ago, three or four years ago, my daughter at the time was three or four years old. We were driving down the street and there was a guy who was walking up the street who had on a t-shirt that said, world's best dad. And she looked at me with her big little big eyes and she says, oh, daddy, you didn't win it this year. <laughs> so every year I see some guy with a world's best dad mug or number one dad or you know bumper sticker. And my kids always say, dad, I guess you didn't win it this year. So um, you know, parenting for me has been exhilarating and humbling. And, you know, there's no, you know, the, you I can go from, you know, literally being the world's best dad, just solving the best crisis, coming up with the right solution, the right story at the right time. And the next minute we're screaming at each other and it's a disaster. And, you know, so I, I, I think I resonate with different podcasts and social media of par- parents who are trying the best they can and they're fumbling around and then they come at little moments of, of joy and, and wonder on top of the chaos and the sadness. And, and uh, you know, I, d- I do a lot of work with families and parents and, and teachers, and I, I want to entertain as a storyteller for sure. So there, 
there's six, there's six stories on the album that are very funny stories. Uh, four of them have to do with me just just failing as a dad, and then usually at the end coming coming through in a way that might be slightly unexpected or fun. I've gotten a great response from this particular album. I mean, I'm proud of all the albums, um, and this one is just is kind of a a snapshot of where I am as a dad now. The way I work as a writer, the stories in the album are stories from my kids from three or four years ago. It usually takes me a while to sort of process and, and come up with it. Um, so that's that's kind of what it is. What also happens is as a as a performer, I'm I'm in different venues, and so I'll often do folk tales or myth. But I always have a little snippet about one of my children. Uh, my my fans seem to like that. So it's been a it's an interesting. It's my second album with Dad in the title, the High Five Daddy which was, you know, when my kids were infants and now this, this one. So it's, I don't know where it'll be when they're surly teenagers. I don't know what I'll call it then, but, um, but, but one of the stories I'll share with you, just to kind of give a little example of, of what I mean um, is, you know, when my daughter was three around the time when she was discovering and knowing how to read a little bit and asking about, you know, are you the best dad or not? I live in Los Angeles and we were in the middle of an epic drought, two or three years of, of no rain. So my daughter was born and had never seen rain in our hometown of Los Angeles. You know, I grew up in Delaware. My dad is from Cuba, but his family moved to Miami. So, you know, in Miami where it was hurricanes and torrential rains and rain showers in Delaware, the same, but LA, we had, she had literally no rain. Now we visited grandma in Chicago and she would see it. But so we're in the car. My daughter is two or three. She's in that 17 point harness in the back. My son is six or seven. So he just graduated into the little booster seat and the kids are fighting in the car. Now we only have 10 minutes to go, but when kids are fighting in the car, those 10 minutes can feel like 10 hours. And I am trying every parenting trick that I've read about, every parenting magazine, every every calming breathing technique and counting backwards and counting forwards and playing I spy and nothing is working. And she is getting her feet out of the harness and kicking my son and he's yelling at her and teasing her. And I'm looking in the rear view mirror, trying somehow to mitigate the fighting and my wife is doing the best she can. And it's just... It, it, no parent, and every parent has had this moment in the car. Hopefully not, but I'm sure that that's the case. And so I'm looking, and I start. I'm starting to slide into things that are starting to make me less proud. That going from the the patient dad to I'm saying to my daughter, okay, listen, stop that kicking, or there's no snacks for you. Henry makes a face. Uh, you stop making those faces, or there's there's no dinner for either one of you. And now I'm slipping into old school. Remember old school parenting? And I said, both of you, stop that. Stop. Stop that breathing no air for either one of you and my wife is starting to laugh a little bit but it's i'm serious i don't want my kids to breathe i want them to stop breathing and i just i get just to the end of my rope and my wife reaches over and she puts her hand on my knee and she says just breathe daddy and i take a deep breath and she takes a deep breath and my kids are still screaming in the back and then like a miracle in los angeles in the middle of this three-year drought it starts to rain. It's one of those old school rain showers. And my daughter has never seen rain on the windshield, rain on the side of the window of the car. And she's looking at those dots connecting and rolling down and there's momentary quiet in the car. And then the rain stops and the sun comes out and she says, daddy, again. And I said, well, honey, no, the, the rain is, is, you know, you can't do the rain. But then my wife looks out to the right of the car and she says, a rainbow. And my son looks out to the right and he says, a rainbow. And I look and I see this beautiful rainbow. My daughter turns her head to the left and says, where is it? I can't see it. Where's the rainbow? What is a rainbow? And I say, honey, turn your head around. But she's turning her head left and right, not around. Turn and look at the look, look at the rainbow. And now I'm starting to yell again. And my wife just puts her hand on my knee and I breathe again. And she says, honey, just pull the car over. Let's get her out. 
and we extract her from that seat and hold her up to the sky where she sees the rainbow. And the delight and joy of a three-year-old seeing a rainbow and rain for the first time just fills all of us. And we're laughing and smiling and a cloud comes and the rainbow is gone. And she looks at me and she says, daddy, make it come back. I would do anything to make that rainbow come back. And I try to explain it about prisms and the way light hits droplets of rain and the precociousness of participation. And she just rolls her eyes like the teenager she's going to be someday, looks over at mommy and says, mommy, again. And my wife is looking at the wind and she sees that the wind is going to blow the cloud. So she moves her hand up in the air and pretends like she's moving the cloud away from the sun and the rainbow appears again. And my daughter looks at me and she says, you see, daddy, mommies are the best. So that's a little, that's a little, you know, that's the opening track from the album. I mean, I, I'm old school. That's what I call it. It's the first, you know, uh, streaming on the, on the, on the streaming device uh, of the album. And um, there's other stories. There's stories of my sons. You know, it's, it's interesting growing up in Los Angeles. I mean, my kids growing up in Los Angeles, the first time they saw snow, these are amazing stories. As a kid, I just took snow for granted, you know? Um, so, and then there's another, the, the end of the story is, um, the last album on the uh, story on the on the on the recording is uh, whale watching for the first time with my children and the disappointment of being on the waves for hours and not seeing anything and then of course the, it's not a doesn't ruin the story to say we see a whale and it's spectacular and um, you know my son and I share this beautiful moment and then he says uh, daddy you're almost the best you're almost the world's best dad. If when we get back to shore, you can take me to Target and buy me some toys, then you would definitely be the world's best dad. And I look at him and say, honey, you know, I'm good with being the world's second best dad. So anyway, those are those are two of the stories I love on that album. And I've gotten a great response from parents and teachers and, and my fans. And uh, thank you for letting me share one of those stories from it. Oh, absolutely. And that one story about your son sounds very familiar uh, to me. <laughs> uh, my own son is a teenager now, so you'll have some more interesting stories to tell later when they get older. I, I know. There's a, there's a proverb from, from China, I think, may you live in interesting times, and you, nobody's sure if that's a curse or a blessing. So yeah, I ho uh, hopefully I'll have interesting stories for my son and daughter when they're teenagers too. Now, it's being a professional storyteller is an unusual sort of uh, thing to do. How did you get started uh, doing this or getting the idea that this is something that you wanted to do? You know, there's there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of um, being mentored by amazing storytellers, and there's a lot of hard work on my part. Um, you know, I didn't. I never knew it existed. Uh, if you scratch, uh, it, it, well, that's that's a little bit odd to say. Storytelling has is the way we communicated before the written word, before language, before there was books, before there was print. It was the way lessons were taught. There was no such thing as, as you know, any of this. And um, in in some ways, it's 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 just a, a part of who everybody is. Um, so to say that you're a professional storyteller, well, everybody's a storyteller. One thing I love about storytelling is is it is a folk art, meaning everybody does it. It's not a fine art. It's not playing the cello. It's not dancing on point or sculpting marble. But turns out that, you know, about 50 years ago in the, in the United States, there was a renaissance of the storytelling movement. And there was um, a national festival that started in Jonesboro, Tennessee, which inspired about 50 other festivals nationwide. And of course, that this movement had been happening worldwide as well. So in Chicago, I just lucked into, I moved to Chicago to become an actor many years ago. And I did, I did plenty of acting. And I love acting. And joined all the unions and did, you know, TV and stage and film. And um, that was a huge part of my life and a, a passion of mine. While studying acting, I took a course with a storyteller. And he just said, this is what the 
oral tradition looks like. And I, there was something very powerful about being alone on stage with nothing, no costumes, no makeup, no lighting, no sound, no set, no director. It's just you, the story and the audience. And it fed a part of the, you know, stage persona that, or the acting per persona that I was, that I couldn't get in on the stage with all these people. Um, so that was very interesting. And I, I pursued it as a hobby while I was pursuing acting. Well, turns out I was much more suited for storytelling than I was for acting. I still act and I love acting, but um, one of my storytelling teachers says, you'll know you'll found your calling when people start calling. And as an actor, I was pounding on doors, but as a storyteller, you know, teachers were just pounding on my door, you know, calling me all the time. Can you come and share that story in this class and that class, do this assembly, that assembly. My big break came when people realized that I'm, you know, a multicultural kid. My father was born in Cuba and, and immigrated here. So I grew up speaking Spanish. I grew up with two cultures and many, many students loved hearing stories of the two cultures because many of them grew up in two cultures as well. Many Teachers love helping students realize the importance and the value of having two languages and two cultures. Many uh, administrations and, and districts, school districts nationwide, wanted you know to bring that message to their students. This pride in being multicultural, this you know advantage of having two or three languages if you can speak them at home, um, and that led to you know getting getting paid to do the you know. To, to do this thing that was a phenomenal hobby for me. And then once I got onto the national circuit, I've played most of those festivals in the, the United States and many uh, overseas as well. Um, I've been exposed to all kinds of people that have helped me get my books published as children's books and as collections of stories. Uh, you know, even fortunate enough to hear, to, to be talking with you today and different radio stations. And, um, you know, that's been, it's been really great for me. And then as a dad now, you know, I was a st professional storyteller from years before I had children. I see the importance and the, the sort of just how incredible it can be to share stories with my own kids, both when they were younger and acquiring language, you know, just telling stories, both personal stories of my own family, but also these folk tales that I had been studying and, I saw very early on how much it helped them be excited about reading and writing and now in school, you know, so one of the, uh, one of the things that I also do is talk with parents about, you know, you have time, you're with your kids, it's hard to compete with these devices, but what happens if we shut off the devices and we just tell a little story about, you know, my kids, are, they're, they're at the age where they love to hear <laughs> what television was like when I was younger. My kids don't even watch TV. They watch on the computer, right? And it'd be interesting to see what their kids watch or how they watch or not watch. You know, my son loves hearing about cassettes and eight tracks and LPs and, oh my gosh, cars didn't have power windows and black, you know, they, so th these kinds of stories, while are fun for him and for my daughter, they also are a way that we connect as a family. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's, it's very personal. It's also professional for me. Um, and then back to, like I said, I, I, living in Chicago, there's five of the top 10 storytellers in the world lived, lived in Chicago when I was there. And every one of them taught me and mentored me and pushed me and challenged me and, and helped me grow to the storyteller that I became. Because there's a certain, uh, it isn't just getting up there and just wing it. There's actually a, a real craft. I had a chance to see, um, um, you know, some YouTube performance he did in front of audiences. And there isn't, you know, a real craft. I'm not I mean, I, if I thought of myself just sort of getting up and winging it, it would not go well. Um, but there's a real, um, you know, an, an art craft into doing it, doing it well, I suppose. 
That's fair to say. I, I, you know, there's years ago, I was aware of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book about, I think it's, I forget what it was called, but the 10,000 hours that you spend doing something makes you an expert at it. Or um, he took that from some other studies, but yeah, there is a craft to it. The, the specific craft, it depends on where I'm at. So if I'm at one of these wonderful national storytelling festivals in a, on a huge stage or in a big tent outside with perfect lighting and perfect sound and people there that know storytelling, that's a very different kind of craft and um, than it is when I'm with you know 500 kids sitting on the floor of a cafetorium and in between recess and lunch with the you know the cafeteria ladies in the back getting lunch ready and the janitors cleaning and the uh, you know the bells ringing like the you know keeping kids listening, there's a skill to that that is learned the hard way, um, and I, I've you know, I've done many performances where I you know wasn't quite able to overcome the the cafeteria sound or the, the random things. But but part of you know so part of it is that, but also the part of it is you know having a good story to tell. Uh, so you know there's there's two parts. There's the telling of the story, and then there's having the good story. And I feel that I've been lucky to be born into these, you know, my dad's Cuban, my mom is Irish American, to born into these two cultures that are, that storytelling is a, almost a part of who they are. There's a joke I tell from from the stage where, you know, my dad says to me, which he still says all the time, I, I hear from him at least once a month, he's from Cuba, he says, mijo, it's amazing you make a living as a storyteller, because you are probably only the 10th best storyteller in our family, you know? And so it's, it's in some ways, I come from a family of phenomenal storytellers. So that's, that's lucky. I practice the storytelling for sure. Um, but, you know, one of the things that makes storytelling easy is, you, you know, go to the library, and you're going to get a whole, a whole mess of just amazing stories. Um, and some of these, I'm learning that some of these kids don't even know what I would consider the basic stories. They never really heard the Billy Goat's Gruff or Three Little Pigs or Rumpelstiltskin or some of the Hans Christian Andersen stories or the Brothers Grimm stories. And so, you know, if I just, if I just be quiet and get out of the way of the story and just tell them a great story, they're going to sit and listen. And it doesn't matter if there's, you know, bells going off in the distance or, you know, sirens down the street, the kids get lost in the story. So early on in my career, I, I had trouble choosing the correct story at the correct time. And I still make that mistake for sure. But now most of the time I'm, I'm honing in on the right story told in the right time. And then, you know, trusting in my, my technique and my craft. Now, along with the, you know, being a storyteller, making these albums and performing in front of audiences, you also offer various professional development programs. Can you talk a little bit about that, the sort of programs you do and what someone might expect out of those? You know, the, the sort of the, the bulk of my career over the last, you know, 30 years has been sitting, you know, going and doing assemblies at schools, performances at libraries and doing these festivals. Now there's always a teacher or principal or, or a superintendent in the audience. And, you know, over the years they have asked me, they said, wow, could you just tell those stories to my teachers? My teachers just need to see how a folktale works, how a myth works, how personal story works. And over, you know, 20 years of doing that, um, it is, I've been sort of, you know, I've, I've said yes to opportunities to talk to entire school districts. And I'm basically all I'm telling them is what you and I've already been talking about. The power of a well-chosen story, well-told is super inspiring and exciting for students. It creates a classroom culture that makes them excited about learning, even if it's they're learning math or science or history. If a teacher starts with a personal story, even if it's two minutes, three minutes. So what I've been doing is helping teachers unlock their own personal stories. 
And then I give them just a few tips, you know, like I, I'm, none of these teachers are going to spend 10,000 hours, you know, perfecting the craft, but here's, here's three or four things they can do to make their own storytelling, their own read alouds come to life. Um, many of these teachers are reading books to these kids, especially at the elementary school level. And I just kind of nudge them into using some techniques of a professional storyteller to make these, these storytelling, their, their book read, read alouds be more exciting for the kids. But also what happens is, and this is uh, in many districts nationwide, um, they're using storytelling to teach writing. Many kids, you know, for sure, five, six, seven years old, they're, they're just learning to actually write the actual letters and words. But even at the higher grades, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, high school, many students are more able to talk through their story before they actually put it to paper. So I help teachers come up with their, with techniques to help the kids talk through the story. And then lastly, you know, to years ago, I started offering it online for lots of different reasons. One is my two kids, I don't want to travel as much. You know, when I, in my heyday before kids, I was on the road 250 days a year. And that was super exciting and wonderful. Well, you know, I don't want to be that that kind of dad to be to be gone. So I started trying to figure out what does it look like if I were to offer it virtually to, to teachers. And it's been amazing, because what it what has happened is more districts are able to, you know, get the the knowledge that I would share for less money because it's you know what they're paying for the online thing is much different than flying me in and putting me in a hotel and paying for my fee so it has been really eye opening how I've been able to sort of expand the you know just share the the power of storytelling in a in a way as a matter of fact I'm doing a professional development next week for a school in Nigeria now I've been to Africa. I've performed in Africa, but I don't go there very often. And I, there's no way I, they could afford to fly me to Nigeria. And I wouldn't take the five days that it would take to get out there. But I get to talk to these teachers and these these parents. And so so that, that's been a, a huge focus of mine, but which has coincided also with my, my own writing work. I've been doing a lot of writing for lots of different um, medium, including books, podcasts, and television. So um, I, my time traveling has been much, much smaller. And so these professional developments have been a really big um, shift for me in my my work. It allows me to get to more teachers and more students, and it allows me to stay at home and focus on my writing and my my um, raising of my children with my wife. Yeah, it definitely opens up a lot more possibilities being able to do these things online. And at least uh, at the time we're speaking, that's uh, certainly <laughs> you know uh, the best choice for a lot of people with um, what's going on. So for sure, for sure. Now, the book you chose as one of your particular favorite books uh, is uh, The Hobbit by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, which I'm sure is a very familiar book. But for maybe some people who haven't had a chance to read it or only know The Hobbit through uh, those movies that just came out and haven't had actually a chance to read the book The Hobbit, can you talk a little bit of what it's about? Yeah, I would love to. So the, the full title is called The Hobbit or There and back again. And the main character is the hobbit, Bilbo Baggins. Now, I haven't done much much research into this book. I've never, in, in my studies of folktales and myths, I haven't come across hobbit as a character outside of J.R.R. Tolkien. Obviously, I could Google that really and find out. So a hobbit is not an elf, which most of us are, are familiar with, or the you know from the seven, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, not a dwarf, not a man. It, it's a, something um, smaller than a dwarf, bigger than a child. Uh, you know, it's an interesting character. So one of the things that caught my interest was that, oh, it's a whole new class of magical creature, a hobbit. Um, and this particular hobbit is Bilbo Baggins. And 
really all the story is, is an adventure shows up on his doorstep. He takes the adventure. He travels with 13 dwarves and a wizard through perilous lands. Uh, and, you know, as the title suggests, he, he gets back again. He goes there on a journey. Along the way, there are multiple hardships. He encounters trolls. He encounters goblins, vicious spiders, um, uh, somewhat unsavory men folk in the in the lands in the east. And at the very end, doesn't give anything away. Uh, battles a huge dragon. Um, now the book is there and back again, so you know that he survives. But how the dragon battle happens is is a delight and a mystery and and very exciting. Um, so that's that's the story in a nutshell. A hobbit goes on an adventure with dwarves, runs into elves, magicians, goblins, trolls, giant spiders, um, miserable shape-shifting bear bear creatures that may be mean or may be nice, um, gets the gold and returns home. And, you know, it's just kind of a prototypical adventure story. It was written in the, I think it was written in the 1950s. I don't know exactly. 19, oh, no, my gosh. The copyright is 1937. There was an update in the 60s because he was working on the follow-up, which is much more well-known, The Lord of the Rings, um, these three, this trilogy that he wrote. Now, I, of course, read the book as a kid before any of these movies were made. And it's funny because now the movies, I most most people or many people saw The Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was such a, a huge hit. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to choose this book is it's the first book that I can remember. I, I was a big reader as a kid for sure, but... I picked it up and I don't even remember how I picked it up. I don't know if my mom gave it to me, if a kid recommended it, if a librarian gave it to me, but I started the book. It was in the summer. I think I was in fifth grade and I, it was one of those, it's the first time that I remembered staying up way, way, way past my bedtime, you know, and it's just that for me, it was just a page turner. And then I remember, I don't know how long it took me to read two days, three days, staying up super late. Everybody was asleep in the house. It was quiet. I'm just reading this book, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And when I finished the book, I, 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 I vividly remember this. It's one of these memories I'll never forget. I turned over to the back cover. I held it. I looked at it and I flipped it over again and started from the beginning. And I did that seven times that summer. I, I read the book cover to cover. And the second I finished, I took this moment of silence for how amazing it was and started it again. And in some ways, it was my entry into the magical world of reading. Um, and I don't know what it was about me or the book or the timing that I read it or, you know, in some ways it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. There was nothing else to do. I didn't have any video games or internet or, you, or a million videos on YouTube or, you know, to, to watch it. You know, it was really like, oh, it's, it's nighttime. There's nothing on TV. I'm just going to read this amazing story. So that was, you know, when I think about books that were impactful to me, in some ways, that was that was that for me. Because I remember, I think at the end of the summer, I said, Mom, this is a really great book. I can't believe it's over again. And I, but I don't want to read it again. Seven times is enough. And she said, well, honey, you know, there are some pretty good books out there in the library. And I remember going to the library and saying, are there any other books out here that are as good as The Hobbit? And the librarian, she said, not, I don't know, probably not, but you might want to try. And she started, you know, nudging me to, oh, as a matter of fact, she, I, I do, I did say this was another book that was on my radar. She said, well, J.R.R. Tolkien was friends with C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chron Chronicles of Narnia. So you might be interested in that. So uh, it, th this book, The Hobbit, was the book that, ignited my passion as a reader. And it's, it's a little, I, I was a huge reader before that, but so, um, 
so that that's one of the that, that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to choose this this book. And it's interesting to go back because of the movies that have come out recently. It's it it adds to the the stories to me, but it also takes away a little bit because now Gandalf is the actor who played Gandalf for me, and um, the elves and the dwarves and and the hobbits look a, look a particular way. So there's a little bit of the magic that was taken away from the making of the movies, but there was much that were added. I love those movies too, for sure. It's hard to unsee them once you've seen them, but yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, the main character is, is Bilbo Baggins, who's a hobbit, but he's in some ways he's not a, uh, he's got many of the characteristics of other hobbits, but he's not a typical hobbit. Uh, and um, so what is it about uh, Bilbo is this, this hobbit that we go on a journey, what makes him such an engaging character that we want to sort of find out what happens to him next and just follow him all the way to, you know, you know, the dragon at the end. It's such a good question. And I, and I think it's also has something to do with why it might've been really, I think it had something to do with why it might've been appealing to me as a kid. You know, I was not a special kid. You know, we all want to be special. My mom, of course, thought I was a special. One of my one of the things my mom said about my first book, she said, she's from Boston. She said, honey, I love Shakespeare, but your writing is better than William Shakespeare. And it was it's a 500 word picture book. I love that picture book. It's been really well received. But it, no, come on, mom, it's not better than Shakespeare. But of course, it's wonderful that I had that sort of advocate. But Bilbo's not special. Bilbo is not a magician. Bilbo's not a warrior. Bilbo's not an elf that, you know, that can sneak, you know, sneak into the the woods and the mountains. He's not a ferocious dragon. Bilbo is a guy who loves tea. He loves many meals a day. He loves his round little beautiful hobbit hole. He loves his his slippers and his clothes. He loves his books. He he loves being at home. So, you know, there's there's nothing special about him, but Gandalf, the magician, sees something in Bilbo and thinks that Bilbo is going to live up to it. Maybe not now, but at some point. So as a young kid, you know, maybe not now I'm I'm not special, but at some point I might be. But what I what I loved about it is is he along the way discovers that he he is fiercer than he thought. And he for sure loves his food and his house and his home, but he can live without eating that and he can live sleeping on the on the ground. There's one section where they, he falls asleep on a rock on a piece on a slab of rock and it's the best sleep he's ever had. Right. And so like these kinds of like, okay, we can, we can survive tough times. We can rise to the challenge. We can discover something inside of us that we didn't know was there. And again, back to the title there and back again, and we can return back to our homes. We can go back to our cozy, cozy homes. You know, one, one of the things that I love about the book is this, <laughs> multiple times, at least a half a dozen times, Bilbo says to himself, oh, I wish I were sitting in my cozy chair with a pot of tea and, uh, and uh, a biscuit or a cake and my feet up on the, on the, you know, on the, on a pillow. Not for the last time did Bilbo wish that. Um, so I, there's something about the coziness of home coupled with this crazy raging adventure with these magical creatures with this this hint of mayhem it's funny every chapter is is definitely very adventuresome and there's definitely you're not sure that that the hobbit is going to survive oh but you are because it's in the title he gets back again so i think that there's some comfort in that the lord of the rings is much darker and there's much more 
much more death and, and evil in, in that collection of stories. And that's for, I think, older kids for sure. You know, even my son is, is five, in fifth grade and 10 years old now. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that we'll read that or see that movie until he gets older even. But I think that was, that, that's part of the, this, this hot, this, this character, Bilbo, what's so kind of amazing about him. You know, I love, many kids love superhero movies, but you know, nobody can fly in the air and, you know, have x-ray vision and, you know, million dollar motorcycles and cars and Iron Man and all these, all these characters, they're fun to watch, but you're not that person. Bilbo is a little bit of the every person, you know, this is not really special. He can walk a little bit quietly. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a little, he's got the power of walking quietly, you know, and then he lucks, you know, there's one, one section where he, he has luck and he has um, his wits and a little bit of wisdom. And with those things, a character can go a long way. And so I feel like, you know, as a kid, like, oh yeah, I'm more like Bilbo than I'm more like that, you know, fierce dwarf with the amazing sword play or that magician with his incantations that can bring fire up out of a wand, or, you know, so I think that's that's one of the things about the character for me. You know, it's been a lot of years since I read uh, this. I mean, a lot of years since I, I read this book. And it, what struck me in rereading it again after so many years, what I didn't remember is the the humor in the book. Um, I mean, some, <gasps> yeah, in some ways you could almost it's almost like a like a, a parody of a quest because he doesn't really he doesn't really want to go on this quest. He's not a typical heroic uh, figure. So it, it I wouldn't exactly call it a parody, but uh, I don't know if, if you know what I mean, that it, it's it's but it, in many ways, there, there are moments of. Uh, they're actually uh, very funny in this book too. It is so wonderful you picked up on that. I forgot the humor as well. Now, what what I do remember was the Hobbit felt easier to read as a kid than the Lord of the Rings did as a teenager. The Lord of the Rings, I love it. It's it's also another masterpiece, but it's 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 more brooding. It's more there's there's more a sense of doom through the whole thing, and there's no real sense that everyone is it, that it's going to end up okay. Um, but you're so right about that. So I, there's another little story about the Hobbit. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it with you on your podcast is so when my son was seven in second grade, I pulled it off the shelf I th- and I thought I said, let me recreate this magical experience for my son and turn him into the reader I became and, and introduce him to the world of fantasy and and um, in the second chapter, when he, they, Bilbo encounters the trolls, he got too scared, got nightmares, and never wanted to read the book again. And I was like, "Oh no, it was too young." The wrong, you know, like showing the wrong movie or the wrong image to a kid at the wrong time. And uh, so we just started reading it again. And this was before you even contacted me. And as we started reading it, he would have a belly laugh almost in every chapter. And I was exactly what you did. I was struck by like, wow, this is really funny. There is, you know, there's, there's, there's slapstick that happens. There is, um, you know, wordplay that happens. There's puns. There's this, he doesn't want to be there. You know, this is every time Bilbo says, I wish I was back home. My son laughs all over again. And so I do think that the humor is, you're right about it being a parody of an adventure book. I, I feel like there's this, like, you know, what, what's going to happen next? Uh, you know, so I, I, I love that. And my son is just making me reread these sections over and over again. And um, I, I do think that that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, this, you know, he, he's loving it. You know, there's a, there's some elements of three stooges in there. You know, they're, they're fumbling over each other. They're tripping over each other They're but it's also mixed in with this really sort of page turning adventure. You know, are they going to survive the spiders? Well, the spider, you know, one of the, the they fall over each other. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. And my son is taking great comfort because when it gets a little bit crazy, 
I have to remind him it's there and back again, son. He gets back. You know, he gets through this. You know, um, so yeah, the, it, it. I am. It is funny that you say that. It's surprisingly funny. And it's a even though there's a like there's a the destination and the quest. Um, there's a certain episodic uh, quality to it. You know, there's different things happen. I think one of the chapters out of the frying pan into the fire could describe a lot of the book. It's always one thing after another, you know, and he gets, you know, as you mentioned with the trolls, uh, Gollum, of course, and the spiders and other things. Did you have a particular favorite, particular adventure that Bilbo has out of all the, all the many ones that he has in this book? That's so interesting. I, I feel like the, of course, the the thing that I remembered from when I, you know, and I picked the first book up again for the first time after many years since reading it in fifth grade, because I hadn't read it since fifth grade, I don't think. Um, I did remember like the riddles in the dark, you know, and I, I was like, I, I don't think I would have had the I was amazed that this this simple character had the wherewithal to come up with riddles and stump Gollum in the dark. So that was that was something. I also love the I, I love the there's two or three times in the book where the Bilbo and the, and the 13 dwarves have this horrible adventure. They nearly die. And then they get to spend three days with the elves and get this beautiful meal and singing and dancing and, and rest in a beautiful bed. And then they go on another adventure and then they're saved and they get to stay in the, the, the cabin of Bjorn, this shape-shifting bear man who gives them these, these beautiful vegan honey meals and mead and, you know, song and story and, you know, talking you know, ponies are, are are waiting on the on the crew, and then the same thing happens. You know, when they finally get through the the horrible forest, they end up at the land of men on the lake, and they get more meals. You know, so I I think this this it kind of ties in with my own little my own little memories of going to see my Cuban family in Miami or my big Boston Irish family in Boston. You know, let's all get together and let's just spend a day eating and laughing and drinking and playing games and having fun. And then tomorrow it's back to school or back to work or back to the adventure of our lives. So I, I think there's a good balance of they're at the end end of the rope. Nobody's eaten in days and days. There's no water. Spiders are going to eat them. And then now, yes, they get to stay, you know, and they get meals and they get fed and they get comfort again. So that that back and forth was uh, I liked all of that. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to hard to pick one of them. But I feel like for some reason, those three moments of respite with the elves and then the and then the men at the end where they get the meals, I, that kind of feasting and merrymaking, you know, we don't do it like that. even Thanksgiving, we spend, you know, all day, but it's not a five day feast like they have with the elves, or it's not a, you know, two week celebration like they have at the end of it. Um, so those are those are some of the, the sections that I love for sure. I have to admit, there's one section that I, I'd never quite get it's the battle of the five armies doesn't seem to quite fit uh, yeah Bilbo sort of disappears and i don't know am i missing something there it just never seems to i like the rest of the book but that one always puzzles me. yeah it's interesting i feel like that, that's an interesting point it, there's a couple of different sections that my son is always intrigued by where the writer says or the narrator says oh well we don't have time to get into that whole story because we have to get we have to find out what happens with Bilbo and the spiders or with Bilbo and this, right? So I feel like that was one of those sections. I also would be interested to know just where he was as a writer, because he was creating the the Lord of the Rings as well. I feel like it, I do feel like it was an underwritten part of the book itself. Or I feel like he was thinking more of the trilogy and the Lord of the Rings. So he's just like, let's just, let's just get him back again. You know what I mean? I think you're right. It it is a little surprising to say. Bilbo was was knocked out for that whole section of the story. You know, the main character, the Hobbit, is not part of the story. So I, I feel there was a little bit of 
you know, there, there was, I think I, I agree with that. I feel e- even my son, he, there's a, a reference to the narrator says, cause we're, we're reading it out loud. We're midway through it now. It says, Oh, and that the battle of the five armies happened. And my son was like, Oh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen with the battle of the five armies. And, you know, part of me is like, well, not much, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but, uh, it's, yeah, that's that. I think you're right about that. It's, it's an interesting question. I do feel like, I mean, in some ways, once the dragon is, is killed at the end, the, the rest of it, it's, it's a little bit like we're, we're at the end of the story. Let's, let's get to the end. And they, he drags out the end a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> now, and it might be sort of, like you said, sort of a little precursor to Lord of the Rings or getting his feet by sort of trying out different things. And while, and I was thinking, uh, although it's not nearly on the scale of Lord of the Rings, he really does create this world that's, it's both unlike anything we know, and yet it's also very familiar at the same time, which is, I think, the sort of the best fantasy writing uh, does. And I just mean, what he, what does he does to create that world that other authors, or even thinking of yourself as a storyteller, uh, to sort of bring that world to life, to make it both, you know, something something we haven't seen before, but at the same time, you know, it's not so strange that we're we're mystified by it. That's interesting. So one of the lessons I teach to teachers when they're when I have them teach writing to their own kids, I talk about the specificity that leads to the universal. So, you know, it's not just, you know, the hobbit lived in a cozy home. He lives in a tunnel with a round green door and a golden knocker right in the middle of it. So there's something like, you know, he really, you know, many, many sections of the book seems to have really seen what he was talking about, was able to put it into words. He does, he does, and this is, it's funny, I, you know, I read it before I started studying world myth and, and folktales. He borrows very heavily from many Brothers Grimm stories and, and um, you know, Anderson stories, and he's folding in snippets of other myths. So, you know, again, it's, there's a little familiarity there as, you know, he's introducing a, a character we've never seen before, The Hobbit, but he's putting it in with trolls and ogres and, you know, goblins. And um, so there's, there's something there with that. Yeah. It's interesting. I I'm also always intrigued with where the personal fits in. Uh, I'm intrigued with that with JK Rowling and with all these other people who create these wonderful fantasy worlds. I always wonder where's the writer is the writer more like Gandalf. Is he more like Bilbo? Is he more like, Thorin, you know, who, who is he, who is he identify with? And I'm, I don't know, there must be articles that interview him and, and he might say that or not, but I feel that there's, there's a specificity of image that he's able to get to, um, that is really, really kind of, kind of amazing. Um, you know, you do feel like you're in that dark forest with these characters and, you know, they, they're just squirrels, but squirrels are black squirrels. And, you know, there's a moment where Bilbo gets up, climbs a tree out of the forest and there's, and he spends some time describing these butterflies, but they're, they're all black. And that's, that's a, like these details, like, oh, that's, that's very interesting. You know, we, we all know what a butterfly looks like. It's a black butterfly. We all know what spiders look like. It's a giant spider. You know, um, so I think that there's something that, you know, he's taking what we all know and just tweaking it in such a way that makes it feel, feel, feel fresh, I think. Um, you know, the, the, so yeah, those, those are some of the things I would say about that. Is there a particular passage from the book that you'd like to share? Yes. There's one from flies and spiders that I'd love to share with you. I'm going to sort of just jump through a little bit of it. Uh, the scene is the dwarves and Bilbo have to get through this miserable forest on the other side of it. The dragon is waiting for them. So it's back to out of the frying pan into the fire. And so all of his friends have been, have been caught by the spiders. He's alone. It's the middle of the night. 
he has he hasn't eaten in days, hasn't had any water in days. It really feels pretty miserable. And uh, and this is it starts like this. That was one of his most miserable moments. But he soon made up his mind that it was no good trying to do anything until day came with some little light and quite useless to go blundering about tiring himself out with no hope of any breakfast to revive him. So he sat down with his back to a tree and not for the last time fell to thinking of his far distant hobbit hole with its beautiful pantries. He was deep in thoughts of bacon and eggs and toast and butter when he felt something touch him. Something like a strong sticky string was against his left hand. And when he tried to move, he found that his legs were already wrapped in the same stuff so that when he got up, he fell over. Then the great spider who had been busy tying him up while he dozed came from behind him and came at him. He could only see the thing's eyes, but he could feel its hairy legs as it struggled to wind its abominable threads round and round him. It was lucky he had come to his senses in time. So then what happens is he pulls out his sword that he has hidden and he kills the spider. And then he says to himself, um, somehow the killing of the giant spider all alone by himself in the dark without the help of a wizard or the dwarves or of anyone else made a great difference to Mr. Baggins. He felt a different person and much fiercer and bolder in spite of an empty stomach as he wiped his sword on the grass and put it back into his sheath. I will give you a name, he said to the sword, and I shall call you Sting. After that, he set out to explore to find his friends. So I love the, I love that, that passage so much because it ties in, you know, he's thinking of home, he's missing food, but still he was able to do it. He was able to come out and, and do it. And then of course, when he finally does save his friends, they they start to realize there's there may be something more to this hobbit than we first realized. And that's something that Gandalf says three or four different times to the dwarves when they're grumbling about how miserable Bilbo is and how useless he is and how is he going to do anything. So that that's one of the the passages that I that I wanted to to share with you. And like all good heroes, he gives a name to his sword as well. <laughs> right. 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 Oh, well, uh, Antonio, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, share with me both your storytelling experience and sharing uh, some of those stories and also talking to me about The Hobbit, which gave me a chance to reread it. Like I said, it's been a long time since I read it, and I just, I've just forgotten how much I really enjoyed reading the book before. So thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me about all that today. Jody, it's my pleasure. And it also gave me an excuse. You know, I, I said to my son, he was a little reluctant to want to read the book out loud because he had the memory of being scared of it when he was younger. And I said, Oh, well, it's it's for a podcast that I'm gonna do and it'd be a really big help if I could if I could talk to you about it. And so I've been reading it out loud to him and it's it's been a, a really joyful time for my son and I to read this book out loud. And it was all spurred by by your invitation to talk about one of my favorite books. So thank you very much, Jody. You can find Antonio's website at antoniosacre.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. 
And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.